Well, we have been taking this a chunk of this summer to address something that's touching our lives in many, many, many categories. Everything from our energy to our relationships to our schedules, how we're feeling about things, how they're going, just our outlook on life. All of that gets touched by this thing that we're describing as pace. Right? Pace is... For different sets of people, pace is part time frame, right? Depends on what moment in history you grew up in. Pace is part technology. Technology squeezes stuff into our lives that you and I have to figure out how to manage physically, emotionally, energy, etc. Uh, I remember a number of years ago, some of you guys would have been on this trip with us. We were part of a, a ministry that was planting churches in very remote locations of Mexico. And we were in a little village called Padilla. And uh, this particular outreach that we were doing, we decided we're going we're gonna to just, we're going to hang out with these folks for a whole week, right? We would, usually we would go to multiple villages and be in a bunch of different places. We'd just be with this one village all week long. And so we just did life with them, you know, they pace of life. And you got to understand this, this, there's, there's no electricity. Uh, the, the walls of houses are, are made from junk, from strapped together pieces of wood. Uh, you can see through them and life is beyond the word simple. Just, it is very, 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 very simple routines that are devoted to just making it to the next day. It's just a, quite a bit of existence. There's no big agenda. There's no big education. There's not a lot of events. I mean, nobody had a you know, a pocket planner, nobody had a cell phone that they needed to schedule something into. Life was very, very simple. And I had this epiphany moment where I'm, I'm realizing before God, you know, Lord, I remember standing in that village and thinking, Lord, I know as a believer who has come to know you, you're all I need. I know that's true. And then my next thought was, but I could not live here. I, I could not do this pace. It was so simple and so uninvolved. Like, I don't think I could do this. Right? Well, we don't have that problem, do we? Uh, we don't have a really, really simple setting. We have a very complicated setting. We have a setting that screams at us, pulls on us, and is relentless all day long, even cutting into our sleep at night, etc. So... Pace is made up of a variety of problems, and I've just been trying to diagnose or maybe dissect pace. This week I want to say pace is a presence problem. Our pace does something to our lives because it affects our ability to be aware of the presence of God. God is always God. God is always in his universe. God is always up to stuff, but... But we're not always aware of that, right? I mean, we can be in this meeting this morning. We've got so much going on, we're kind of not really here. And maybe I'm listening to about three minutes worth of what's going to be said, and, and maybe that'll dial into me, and maybe I'm going to walk out of here totally unaffected. That doesn't mean God wasn't here. It means I was not aware of his presence. I didn't encounter his presence. I didn't engage his presence. So look at this passage here in Acts chapter 3. Apostle Peter is proclaiming, this is within the first few weeks of the church being formed in the book of Acts, and 
Peter's explaining God's purpose to this crowd. Verse 18, he says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. All right, can I, if I just meandered into the stressful settings of your life, the things that are just running at full speed, the things that are wearing you out, the things you're worried about, places where your anxieties go. How do you find refreshment? That's a good thing, right? Being refreshed, that place where everything that just seems to be in knots and freaking me out and just interacting with me and it just feels like chaos. How do, how do we get that to settle down? How do we get our lives to feel like, all right. Yeah, the first thing you do in New Orleans these days is you come into an air-conditioned building, right? That's the first thing you do. But I want to be refreshed. I'm just noticing the chaos and the tension and the things that are pulling on me. And the world begins to offer other places that's trying to do something like that, or at least we're seeking for them to do something like that. And then this verse comes along and says, hey, there was this big project that God was working on. And I just need to make that clear to all you guys. And then we get to verse 20. And it was done, why? So that times of refreshing could come to us from the presence of the Lord. So when pace is is hectic and wearing us out and hard to manage, it's at war with being refreshed. So therefore, presence is important in our lives because of the way God's made us. (coughs) Excuse me. All right, well, there's something going on in this passage that you can't rush past because you can't just run to presence. Anybody here who today who's thinking, hey, I can just cozy up to God whenever I want to. Oh, it doesn't work that way. Maybe you're coming in here and it's like, oh, this will be really. So how does God just kind of get all over me, get in my setting? You know, I'm a spiritual person, so I'm kind of like a lightning rod for spiritual stuff. So, hey, give me some tips here. Um, The hard news is you can't get anywhere near God. And he won't get anywhere near you. That's awkward, right? But there's something in this. There was this project that God worked on. There's a big deal here. And this is a big deal. And I want to ask you this question. Is the big deal highlighted in this passage a big deal to you? Not only a big deal, but the big deal. The big deal that defines more about your life than anything else, right? It's, It's tucked away right in the beginning there. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. So God's been talking about this for a long time. There's a big deal coming and God has been talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. He put it in that guy's mouth. He put it in that guy's mouth. He put it in that guy's mouth. All throughout time, God had people who were just human beings talk about stuff that they could not have known about. Things that they could not have understood because they were going to be so far removed from them in time that they could not have understood this themselves. But what God did was was he wrote stuff down so that humanity could read. And if if I were, I mean, how many guys can I, you don't raise your hands, but like when you you publish like stuff about Nostradamus, it's like, oh, I've got to watch this. 
this guy could tell you stuff before it happened. That makes you, that makes you different, doesn't it? What if God wrote a book and he's like, hey, I'm not impressed. I said a lot of stuff before they happened. <clears throat> and I wrote them down in a book for the purpose that you would read them. Because what they'll do, it's, it, it's sort of like my resume. You know, God doesn't show up in his world and just say, hey, I'm God because I say I'm God. And that settles it. God could have said that. But instead, he, he creates a, a trail of breadcrumbs that lead us to discover that God has said a bunch of things and then they came true. God has given us information that nobody could have access to unless he were God. Right? So when you, when you read Isaiah, it's interesting. This is, this is God bearing witness, right? And this is what Peter highlights. Isaiah 41. This is God helping you. If you're going on indeed.com or you know, one of these looking to hire somebody places, this is the stuff you need to know if you're looking to hire a God. Okay, you, if you're going to interview a God, this is the kind of stuff this God needs to be able to do. And this is God speaking through Isaiah, Isaiah 41, 21, set forth your case, right? So there's a lot of, lot of false gods out there. And God says, Hey, bring me your resume. Let's see. You're going to be able to tell humanity why they exist, who they are, what the lay of the land is. Okay. Bring me your resume, set forth your case, says the Lord, bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Oh, and tell us the former things as well, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm. That we may be dismayed and terrified, but do something, right? Show up in this world and do some tricks. Behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north. This is, this is the moment when Assyria and eventually Babylon are going to come on the scene here. And God is using the prophets to tell in advance what world events are about to take place. God told of all these events recorded in history before they took place. Behold, you are not, I'm sorry, verse 25. I stirred up one from the north and he's come from the rising of the sun and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning? That we might know and beforehand that we might say, he is right. So when you and I go to do life, we, we don't understand life. We don't understand ourselves. We don't understand what's righteous. We don't understand how to treat one another. We don't understand what rules and laws to make. We don't understand. Everybody okay with that? Can you, can you acknowledge that? Even if you've got a Harvard degree or multiple letters behind your name. Is there some point in which you admit, I don't know. And in that moment, is there something superior to you that you then look to, to frame your understanding of the world that exists? And God turns around in Isaiah and says, who is that? Bring them to me. I just want to see what they know. And God claims to be the only one qualified to be God. 
Right? This is what the kids learned all week long at VBS. The, the, the searching for the one true God. Don't let anybody have access to explaining your existence and defining who you're going to be and what's the right thing to do if they cannot fully explain the past and they cannot fully tell you the future. They're not qualified. If they're just from the same time frame as you and they've read a couple of history books and there's an opinion about this and they can bring a little bit of thought from that, they can't go far enough back and they can't see into the future at all. Do not let them play God in your life. God says, I am this God. Well, what you've been doing all this time, God? Well, in that passage... God has been foretelling and foretelling and foretelling and foretelling and foretelling. Not so he could be like Nostradamus. Like, ooh, God can tell you what happens on Thursday. No, no, no. All this foretelling and foretelling and foretelling and foretelling was leading to one particular event. Even though he said a lot of things about different things. It was about one particular person who would do one particular thing in his grand scheme of his creation. Ryan Lister has written a book a couple of years ago called The Presence of God. It's been an outstanding read. He says, Emmanuel came to dwell among his people. This is the one thing and the one person. And substitute himself for the lost. In his atoning work on the cross, Christ reconciled us to God by being present with man. He became man in this world. Why did he do that? To reopen access to the Lord. So that those exiled from Eden may draw near to God. Now hopefully I'm going to give away where I'm trying to go with this message. And maybe one next week as well. The gospel takes us somewhere. You don't just come to the gospel. You don't just come to the good news. You don't just come to a body of information. You don't just come to this book. This takes us somewhere. What God was doing is tucked away in that passage in Acts. God was doing something through what all these prophets were pointing to. Pay attention to him. Pay attention to him when he comes. There's something unique about him. He is somebody unique and he's going to do something unique that you need to know about. So back to Acts chapter 3, verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. That your sins may be blotted out. So from as far back as anybody can tell the story to all the way into the future, perhaps the biggest news about our lives is that we have sins that need to be forgiven. How important is that to you? How much did that news invade your week this week? Either... You're on the wrong side of that news and you desperately know of all the things I need in my life, I need God to be okay with me. I need my sins to be forgiven of all the things that I know about. I need that. Or maybe you're on the other side of that and you've come to realize that of all the things my life lacks, of all the things that I wish were different, of all the things that could be improved in my life, this one thing I have, I 
have the forgiveness of my sins. They are blotted out and they are removed. Does that news cast a shadow on everything else about your life? Now, I would have to say for too many of us, it kind of doesn't. There's other news that's really, really noisy, really pressing on us. If that will get done, if my station will improve, if this will person will treat me differently. That's the stuff that's news headlines, right? Really, really important stuff. But from Genesis all the way to Revelation, when you get to the end of the book, right? We're about to sum things up here. Revelation 1 sounds like this, verse 4. Grace to you, right? This is the end of the Bible, describing the very end of thoughts concerning our story. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's God's resume. The one who is God. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us, thank you Lord, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Oh, 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 don't edit any of those words. Do you understand? I always pick on Oprah. I don't know who else to pick on. Uh, Oprah could say the first part, the God who loves us, the God, there's a God out there and he loves us. Oprah will say that. Anybody can say that. It's the next part that'll choke you. And he has freed us from our sins. Did you know you needed to be freed from your sins? Did you know that? Did you know how big a deal that was? Did you have any idea what kind of a price awaits you if that statement is not true? You've never heard such good news in your life. Only if you're aware of how bad the news is if you don't get that fixed. Well, how do we get it fixed? That's a big phrase that comes next. By his blood. What is that like one way of many ways? No, this is the end of time. And if you go all the way back to Genesis, when sin enters the world, God points to one place to overcome sin and the devil himself. The one, the one, the one who gets testified again here, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. There's only one who will crush the head of the serpent and there's only one who will shed his blood. So this is massively important good news. The news of all news in our lives. There's no bigger thing for me. There's no bigger news for me to ever discover. That the God who created everything and who prophesied and prophesied and prophesied and wrote down and wrote down and wrote down and left a trail leading to this one person. Jesus Christ, who was a unique person. He was the Christ. He was the one appointed by God who would do something. For you and for me that nobody else could ever do. He would remove my sins. He had the power to do that. His blood and his blood alone could rewrite my story. And there's nothing bigger in this world than that. You and I possess no greater news than that. Kind of leads me to, to have to tell the church again. Oh, in these days. Conversion is a big deal. That's what that is. When you come into agreement with God, that, that calling back, turning back to God, 
And repenting and turning back, that's what conversion is. It is repenting and turning to God. It's not, it's not just a changing your mind over something. It's not like, hey, I used to do this, now I do this. That, that's not repentance and turning to God. Conversion is repenting and turning to God. It's coming into agreement with God. So, can I tell you, in our land that's so noisy about conservative principles, there are many people who are celebrating the abortion law that changed who have not repented and turned to God. The great need of the church is still in our land. Because the great call of the church is not to reform local laws. As much as we want righteous laws in our land. The great call of the church is to bring people to conversion. So that they turn to God in repentance. And that one person in all of human history who did something nobody else can do shows up in their life. And they find times of refreshing that come from the presence of God again. That which was lost in Eden. David Wells wrote a book called Turning to God. He said, conversions of all kinds are commonplace in our world today. An alcoholic turns from drink to sobriety. Westerners afflicted with boredom renounce their way of life and seek meaning from Eastern gurus. Right? A lot of people turn vegan these days. It's up to you. Although these conversions may be precipitated by dramatic crises and result in changed behaviors, they are not conversions in any Christian sense. If they do not, if they do not have Christ as their cause and object and his service as their result, they are not Christian. If they do not involve turning from sin to God on the basis of Christ's atoning blood and by means of the Holy Spirit's work, they cannot be called Christian. Listen, I get when we tell our testimony, we tell our story, there's a, there's a change element. We describe our lives in some way. If your testimony sounds like this, like it's got a big piece of it that explains, hey, dude, you got to know, listen, I used to drink a fifth of vodka a day. I mean, you try to keep up with me as a party animal. I was nuts. I, I would go to this bar. I'd go to this place. I'd fly across the world. I didn't, you got a lot to say about how you used to be really, really, really corrupt. And now your life has got some different stuff in it. You could go to an AA meeting and not mention Jesus at all and say a lot of that. And don't get me wrong. I think if Jesus comes into your life, he changes your life. And we ought to be able to point to those changes and explain them. But your testimony is not a testimony of conversion until it is yoked to the Christ. The anointed one. The, the one. What did he do? Well, he was a substitute for me, he took my place and he took the penalty of my sin upon himself and he gave me forgiveness. And that's not even the end of the story. Then he thrust open the door so that I could now return to the presence of Yahweh, the one true God. That's the whole testimony. My testimony is not I was a big jerk and now I'm like sometimes, most of the time, just a little jerk. You want to come to church with me? That's not my testimony. My testimony is that I have been restored to the presence of Yahweh. 
And I get to taste it at some level right now by the Holy Spirit. And I get to be face to face in eternity and see him fully who he is. That's my story. Be careful how we tell our testimonies. This verse calls for something. It calls for a human response. Acts 3, again, verse 18. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Repent and turn back. There needs to be, there needs to be these words in our history as individuals. And these words feel a certain way. So I would say, how how in touch with you are what it feels like to repent and turn back to God? To be in touch with the sense that I, I need to go that way now. I don't even know what all that means. I just... I just know I need to pursue him. That, that, that thing going off in you. That that's now your story. That's what you're going to be about. That's going to define you for the rest of the days of your life. I, I don't know if that kind of turning to God is clear enough in the Christian world today. We're all sold on the ideas. Live your dream. Live your dream. Live your dream. And then we invite God to come live our dream with us. We don't necessarily turn to God. We're, we're just so very grateful that God has turned to us. And whatever I was doing, you know, maybe I was 90 miles an hour doing that. Now I'm 65 miles an hour, but I'm still doing what I wanted to do. And I'm just so grateful that there's a God who wanted to come along for a ride. That's not what Acts 3 is talking about. All of human history awaited for God to do something that would restore us to him. Turn him back to him. Douglas Birdsall says, too often people are invited to come to Christ and to join the church in such a simplistic way that the process of conversion requires little by way of serious thought, little by way of a call to sacrifice, and little by way of commitment to serve. Then one wonders why there's so little evidence of transformed lives, families, and communities. When Jesus issued the Great Commission, he didn't tell his followers to go into all the world and ask people to raise their hands or to fill out a decision card. Rather, he enjoined them to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything he had commanded. This requires an intensive and sustained investment in the lives of disciples to the end that every aspect of a person's life, every aspect is supernaturally converted and reoriented in turning to God. Listen. If if I am off running into a world with my own definitions of what serves me and my peeps best, it could be very possible that I have invited Jesus to come along for that ride and I bump into like like, like this week, I bump into an idea like an abortion law. And and I don't see how that law, how it's changed, how that's going to serve me and my peeps who are trying to, I mean, and this is what you're hearing over and over again. People who are giving a testimony about how a previous abortion in their life opened up opportunities for their life to become what it became. And and I wouldn't have that story if I'd had this child. Well, okay, I, I probably think something like that in my own categories. I reason everything around what serves my agenda, my needs, my strategies, my way. But conversion is about turning to God. 
It's about turning to him. So whatever my definitions of life were before I turned to him, they're all up for grabs now. They all need to be reviewed and reconsidered. So listen, if you're among the people of God, you're watching, you're like, man, I don't know how to digest this whole abortion thing. Draw near to God. He'll lead you into how to digest it. Get around God who has gotten around your brokenness and he leads us all in the truth. Can I tell you, I'm 58 years old, um, got saved as a teenager. God is still having to show me, Keith, you don't think right. In a bunch of really important categories, you don't think right. And I argue and I resist. So, you know, if you've got a different category than me, I mean, okay. But I, I got my own challenges. But, but listen carefully. I'm going to have to do this really quickly. There's a big but I want to, that's kind of weird to say, a big but I want to install here. Uh, <laughs> this whole big deal that's highlighted in this passage in Acts chapter 3, it, it's taking us somewhere. It's, it's a doorway. The big deal was a doorway. It wasn't the destination. It was a doorway. It was taking us to being connected to the presence of God again. That's where it was taking us. And it's still being highlighted that way. Acts 3 verse 19. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Right there. There's no accessing God with sins that have not been paid for by blood. There is no accessing God. If you think there is... You're not just reading something different than what the scriptures say. And why did that blotting out and removing of sin happen? Why did the barrier get torn down? Here's why. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's what God was doing. Remember, in the Garden of Eden, man experienced the presence of God without the hindrance of sin. Without their own brokenness, they, they knew his presence. And the Bible describes it that way. God walked with them in the cool of the day. He was near to them. They knew it. When they sinned, what did they seek to do? To hide from God's presence. You know, I don't think they broke out a theology book and say, whoa, 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 before we do that, isn't God present everywhere? Like, they had some understanding that wasn't totally wrong. Because while they were hiding, they weren't aware of God's presence again until God showed up, right? And said, Adam, where are you? Up until that moment, they thought the hiding thing was going successfully. (laughs) He can't find us. He doesn't know where we are. I think we're going to get away with this, Eve. (laughs) No, he knows where you are. But you are not aware of his presence now, are you? Until God does something near them and they become aware. And God has created a means for us to be near to him in the cross, resurrection, and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Again, Ryan Lister says, from Genesis to Revelation, God's covenant voice calls a people to relationship. A call that reverberates throughout the scriptures until it crescendos in John's prophetic vision all the way in Revelation. This covenant picks up where Adam left off. With God's creating a people and place for the enjoyment of his presence. This divine purpose pervades every covenant ratified and culminates in the new covenant arrival of Christ 
the new and better Adam, the one who accomplishes what Adam could not. So there's something about God's presence that is so relevant to the pace of our lives, right? This last little thought I want to share with you quickly is turning to one thing that sets the pace for everything. There's this one thing that God had in mind for his human creatures to experience about his presence. And when you pull that out and you wind us up and stick us out into do life, you create a chaotic pace of life. And you can't fix that until the presence of God finds its way into who we are. So this is a huge, huge, huge issue. One more thought from Mr. Lister. He says the restoration of God's presence, or we could say his, his relational nearness like that, once lost in the fall is one of the most pivotal acts in this story of redemption. As John shows us the, mo- the final hope of history is that the dwelling place of God is with man. I mean, can you hear? This is the crescendo of all things. You get to the end of Revelation. And what John announces is, hey, I saw the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down. Oh, can I tell you what was the most amazing thing was? The dwelling place of God was with men. That's what you've been looking for, isn't it? That's what you've been longing for. That's why your life feels empty. That's why it feels confusing because the presence of God is too far off and too distant. But there's coming a day where God is going to fix all that and the dwelling place of God will be with man. That's what tabernacle was, right? The Old Testament tabernacle, but God only showed up there every once in a while. But God tabernacled among us. It was about his dwelling with us. And God will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's where this is taking us. So let me give you two quick examples here. And then we'll pray. And there are a chunk of scriptures, but I just want to hear from men we respect who lived lives that told this story. So you have King David, who wrote so many of the Psalms. He has this moment where he points out this this one thing for him. David, what's the one thing, right? I want to be able to answer, Keith, what's the one thing? What are you freaking out about? What's most important? What what absorbs you? what's, What's your one thing, Keith? Well, David had problems in his life. Psalm 27, verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers, listen to what's around David. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, right? The house of the Lord was the tabernacle that had turned into the temple. That was the dwelling place of the presence of God. The one thing I want is to be near that all the days of my life, to to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. One thing, that's the one thing. 
Verse 7, he says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Lord, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face do I seek. You know, the word in Acts chapter 3 that's translated presence, it's also translated in the New Testament scriptures, face. Times of refreshing may come from the face of the Lord. From encountering God this way. What I love about David here, because David is, David is only like me in that he had troubles. He is not like me in the way he responded to his troubles. I, I, am, I would not have been invited. Hey, write some Psalms, Keith. Um, here's a man who, who's the noise of his life is war. Enemies, hostile forces, people who are against him, they're threatening him. He feels anxious moments. Even in that noise, oh, I want to be like this. He wanted one thing. This wasn't a guy telling a story, it's going great, everything is cool. I mean, we're expanding the kingdom, we're, we're kicking butt everywhere. I mean, we knocked down one bad guy after another in this world. Oh, man, the one thing. Now, the one thing that David wanted was always the one thing. Even when it was hard, even when it was scary, even when he was opposed, even when he was afraid. I want one thing. I just want the presence of God. I just want what that imparts to me. What it awakens in me. I, I want that. Right? You guys, some of you guys who have read your scriptures will know this last story. Moses, Moses makes an interesting stance in this statement. This is Moses' formula. Everything without the one thing equals nothing. Everything, good stuff even, without the one thing, hmm, no thanks. And these weren't bad things. Exodus 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart Go from here, you and the people, right? This is, this is these guys, they've met at God at Mount Sinai, and now they're going to go on into the promised land. Next step. Go from here, you and the people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring, I, I, I'll give it. I'll send an angel before you, and I'll drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, the Perizzites, Hivites, all the people in the land. Go up, man, to a land that's flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you. Lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word. They mourned and no one put on his garments. This is it's a minor thing, isn't it? I mean, you just got an all-expense trip paid to Disney World. For a whole month. The best place possible. Tickets to everything. First class everything. Oh, oh just this one thing. I'm, I'm not going with you. Well, we'll send you a postcard. <laughs> Verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and he'd pitch it outside the camp, far from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. What was he meeting there? He was dwelling with God. He was meeting with the presence of God. 
And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, listen, all the people, all the people would rise up. And each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he'd gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend, right? This is signifying that the presence of God is now showing up. And stand at the entrance of the tent and the the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Can I just make a little public service announcement here and stick an asterisk right here? All the people, all the people are in this moment. All the people are prepared for a moment when God's presence would come near. All the people. Anybody else besides me concerned that these settings have become so familiar to us and we are so casual in them that we might be more like, did Moses go in the tent? I don't know. I stopped watching. He did yesterday. I don't know if he went in today. That's all right. I don't really have time for that anyway. All the people. I wonder at some point, some of the people didn't start saying, Moses, geez, I got work to do, man. Can you stop going out there so often? I need to stop and do what now? There was something about an awareness of need and and reward of the presence of God. All the people were prepared for the sense that God might come near to us. Welcome to Sunday morning. We might have God come near to us when we gather together. He might show up in a way that I know I walked with him in the cool of the day. I knew he was near me today. He imparted something to me today. He awakened something in me today. I'm affected by God's presence today. Did I come to church today for that? Or am I so busy and I'm so worn out? My own story, I don't know what yours is, but I worked all day long yesterday in my yard. I'm an idiot. It's hot. I got a thorn jam through my shoe, went all the way into the bottom of my foot. My foot is swollen. It's like, I got a lot to think about besides being in this room with everybody this morning. I could just skid in here and do my thing and skid out. Because, I mean, I got work to do when I get home. I got stuff. I got pace problems. I don't have time to pay attention to whether God, some unique way, is showing up in this room this morning. I didn't even sing the songs, did you? I mean, then he goes and does a song we don't know. I'm like, oh, please. (laughs) And then you get down the road a piece. And we have misplaced the presence of God. But I still got a calendar to make out and I still got plans to make and I still need to sign my kids up for something. I still need to do life. But I'm exhausted. Because there are times of refreshing that come and some that only come from the presence of the Lord. 
I don't know what we're doing for musicians, but I'm stopping. <laughs> I'm just going to pray, Keith, so you, if you don't got anybody to send up, that's okay. Listen, I, we, we don't feel these messages in the midst of our noise. We, we need moments like these where we can stop and step back and say, hey, what, what, what is going on with me? Because chaotic pace and, and the exhaustion it brings and the trouble that it creates and the, the feelings that we have, we tend to blame that on people and schedules and needs that come up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But might it be that you and I have been made by a God who when he was doing one thing in human history, he was restoring his presence to us. And you and I are never going to be okay. We're never going to be okay without that presence making us okay. Now, I, I, I cut a whole chunk out of my message. I probably should come back and visit it another time. Please notice something. It's the passage you started with. Deuteronomy chapter 8 tells the story of God sitting with his people saying, Hey, the land of milk and honey is right over here. I'm giving it to you. He leads them into something that's going to be busy, noisy, and full of stuff to enjoy. And that's what God wanted for us. If God's idea about how to do godliness was, Hey, uh, I got this little place called Padilla. Can't wait for you to get there. There's nothing to do but me. He would have left them in the desert. Matter of fact, this place is in the desert. He would have left them in the desert. He just said, look, I'm going to make this easy for you guys. No milk and honey. Nothing growing on trees. No vineyards to keep. No businesses to run. There's no wealth here. There's nothing to do except just hallelujah me all the time. You do understand God could have written that story. And then he could have found fault with every one of you people who keep getting tempted by going off eating the grapes over there. But this God wanted us to eat the grapes and go, did you make these? Wow. Has anybody said wow lately to you, Lord? Uh, Hey, and this relationship thing, really cool, really amazing. And and I got work to do tomorrow, right? You, You think God's against all that? He created it all. Somehow, but if you read Deuteronomy 8, God says, hey, welcome to the promised land. Oh, but by the way, be careful that you don't forget me. So the answer of our lives is not, hey, guys, I want you to dial back everything, kill your schedules, don't do anything, quit your jobs, let's all build a commune. We'll go move to South America. I think that's been done before, but didn't work out well. Um, God wants to draw near in the midst of the noise and be that one thing in our lives. Let's stand up together. Lord, uh, the old saying is true that ground is even at the foot of the cross because we all stand as broken human beings in need of your intervention specifically the intervention of the one who came in our place and went to a cross 
to blot out our transgressions so that he could thrust open a door for us to come into your presence. Oh, Lord, you know we needed that. And Lord, we are a group of people today living in the hectic noise of 2022 with our calendars and our devices and our many, many access to people and events and things and places to go. Oh, Lord, would you help us do this one thing, this one thing. Help us not to forget about you. Help us to not live in a land of promise, but we can't find you. We don't experience you. We haven't sought or encountered your presence in such a long, long time. So, Lord, we, we don't just want to fix pace. Lord, I'm not interested in writing a book on how to get more done in less time. Lord, we, we want you. That's what if I'm complaining about anything about my pace is I, I don't like the way it keeps me from you. From tasting and seeing and knowing. Oh, Lord, so I can't identify with David. I think so many of us can, Lord, as we stand and say, Lord, one thing, God, one thing. Have I asked, and that will I seek. Can I just dwell with you? Can I just be near your presence in all this noise? And Lord, I look forward to the day when the story of our lives will be the dwelling place of God is among men. Every moment, all the time, never interrupted. But Lord, until we get there, would you, would you interrupt more often? You find your way near to us and interrupt our lives with your presence in profound ways that affect us and that bring times of refreshing. That's what Jesus was on a mission to do in our lives. And we want to receive that completely. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Hey, uh... Guys, if, if you are in need of, of prayer this morning, please come find your way forward. Uh, some prayer partners who will come find you and pray with you. Hey, if you've got questions about how to feel about abortion issues, etc., I'm going to hang around up here. You can come find me or find one of the prayer guys as well. Let them pray with you. Love you guys. We'll see you next week.